Welcome, Welcome to, to the Better, Better Call Daddy Show. This is Big Daddy. Oh my God, that's hysterical. You're not going to believe this. Oh, oh my God. God. Five stars. Five and a half stars. Papa. My dad is my hero. Grandpa, are you ready? I love a good happy ending. Oh boy. Hey, hey, The phony baloney. And a tit for tatter. Hey, a lot of these things, I don't know where you're getting them from. It sounds like they're coming from when I look in the mirrors. Damn the public. Damn the public. <laughs> Introducing Greg Creed. Today, we're going to talk about the culture of leadership and all of the ingredients that go into that. You have to have courage and give people the opportunity to be themselves in order to be a good leader. Greg, welcome. Weren't you kind of known for wearing jeans in the office? Yeah, that's a funny story. When I ran Taco Bell, which was when was, uh, 2007 to 2014, I, one day I just decided we could all wear jeans. And then David Novak phoned me up and he goes, you think you might've just checked with me before you said Taco Bell could wear jeans? And I'm like, I don't really think it matters what we wear to work. It doesn't change our brain functioning. So everyone loved it because Taco Bell was in jeans and the other, no one else was in jeans. And I was like, I'm not sure why jeans is such a big deal, but it was, yeah, it was, well, Taco Bell was much more relaxed, more youthful. So all that sort of stuff. So, yeah. Yeah, so I kind of surveyed my audience prior to this and was like asking, you know, what they would want to ask a former CEO of Taco Bell, actually, and a millennial responded and he said, you know, he'd like to congratulate you on, on totally turning that brand around and making the comeback of the century. It went from people being scared of the meat quality to millennials having Taco Bell weddings, naming their first, firstborn Chalupa. And he said props on the hilarious Illuminati 666 logo conspiracy theories and the whole ad campaign. Yeah, I know it was a great brand to work on. And you're right, it was in the late 90s. They had the Chihuahua campaign, which a lot of people, a lot of millennials would never have seen because they're too young. And it was winning lots of awards, but it wasn't doing anything for the business. And uh, you're right. And we sort of turned the business around. And yeah, it was just, it's just a great brand to work on because it's sort of like, the young rebellious brand that you can almost do anything with. You can get away with it. The more sort of left of center you are, and I mean politically, I just mean like edgy, the more the customers love it, right? And so a lot of brands have to play it safe. They have to be like good. You know, they have to be like good. Taco Bell didn't have to be good. We could just be the rebel. The more rebellious we were in a weird way, the more the cult following. And then we did, as you said, all those sort of things, the pop-up hotel in... Uh, Palm Springs, that what other food brands ever created a pop-up hotel for three or four days and stuff like that. It was a great brand. And um, as you said, we improved the food quality dramatically. And but we didn't talk about it. We improved the quality, but we didn't talk about it because we were more talking about the rebellious nature of the brand than we were the quality of the food. But you could you knew the food had got better. We just didn't we didn't go out there and say, oh, you know, the beef's this and the chicken's that and the cheese is that. Uh, even though we made dramatic changes. We took over about three years, I forget what three years. We took a million and a half pounds of sodium out of the menu and didn't tell anybody. What and that was because, prompted well, that? Well, we, I think there was, this whole, there was this whole movement towards things on the ingredients that you could actually pronounce and find in your kitchen cupboard, not things that sounded like they came out of a science kit. There was always also this move to you know, reduce fats and stuff and reduce sodium. But it was interesting because a lot of companies took out the sodium and they told everybody and their sales went down because everyone really knows deep inside sodium makes it taste good. We actually took out all, a lot of sodium out. We just didn't tell anybody because we thought if we tell everybody, everyone's going to think it doesn't taste as good. 
Whereas what we'll do is we'll take it out. So it is better for you. We just won't tell you we've taken it out because that wasn't, no one came to Taco Bell, you know, for that reason anyway, right? It's probably the most fun time I ever had was, I was also the chief marketing officer for Taco Bell for about four years and then ran it for like seven. So it was, it was a lot of fun. Great franchisees, great, great people living in Orange County, which is, you know, pretty hard to beat. So it, it, it was a fun time. I'm wondering which would you rather speak in front of thousands of people or open a restaurant every eight hours? Yeah. Uh, well, for me, it was easier to speak in front of thousands of people. That was that I found easy. I had a team that opened a restaurant every eight hours. That, that was their job. My job was to sort of tell the story. So one is a lot harder. Opening a restaurant somewhere in the world, I think it got down to like every five hours we opened a restaurant somewhere in the world. That was harder, but I didn't have to do it. I, I jokingly said I could go on TV and be an interviewer because I, I actually, I'm happy to talk as long as anyone wants to ask me questions. Right. So. And your love for marketing yes began right. with your daddy it did it did it began with my dad playing games guessing what the ad was on television so that's where it sort of all started because i i can't think of any other place that it started was exactly there and he traveled a lot because he was in sales in those days so he was probably away every second week but when he was home he and i would just sit there and you know and remember these are the days of there's only four stations and you know all that sort of stuff right i mean i'm this, this is back in the late 60s and early 70s so this is a long time ago I, I think it's sort of where I not only found my love of marketing it's where I sort of learned some of my early lessons of how to make brands distinctive how to make them memorable all that sort of because I still love it today when people go oh I saw this great ad the other day and I'm like and what brand was it for They're like I don't really remember but it was a great ad I'm like, well, it, was a, it was a crappy ad if you don't remember the brand then it doesn't matter how good the ad was sort of thing, so so tell me more about your dad I'm curious about like your childhood yeah. I'm an only child, so I think, you know, I actually, everyone says, oh, you know, they always get the, oh, I'm so sorry. I'm like, oh, no, I'm really happy. You don't know what you don't know, right? So I actually have a son and a daughter, so I've got, my children have a brother and a sister each, but I never regretted for one moment not having a brother and sister. A lot of only children that I've met, most of them are the same. Everyone thinks we had some sort of like lost childhood. I actually think what happens is you get treated more like an adult. When you're the only child, you tend to get included in the, you know, it may not be your decision, but your opinion is actually wanted. And so I think that only children, funnily enough, I think are much, they're probably, they find it easy to be around adults because quite often you don't have a brother or sister and you've got, if your parents have friends over and other adults come over. So I, I found myself always very comfortable around adults. When I used to run Taco Bell, we, we would have these days when uh, potential marketing interns from, the, from like MBA students would come and visit us and they'd spend the day with us and then I would join them for like drinks and stuff at the end of the day and just answer questions. And it was really funny that the kids whose parents were either in business or had parents who had sort of senior level jobs or were only children were actually much more comfortable engaging with me. And the kids whose parents had maybe never worked in business were like just sort of shyer. It's a gross exaggeration, but it was sort of, it was a trend I noticed a lot. And I actually said to them, we have to make sure we don't have a sort of cultural bias and hire the people we find it easier to, to converse with than the people who are maybe the smartest kids. Yeah, that is really interesting. And I would like to segue that into somebody else asked a question about talent and yeah. hiring talent. Chick-fil-A has created like this great brand of customer service. How did you compete with talent and hiring of somebody that might want to work for that brand? 
you probably couldn't find two different brands in Chick-fil-A and Taco Bell, right? One is really good and one is the Rebel. I mean, it's, they're about as different as you could find two brands. I never tried to copy Chick-fil-A. That was never my intention because Chick-fil-A is its own brand and it should do what it does and it does it incredibly well, right? That's fantastic. But, you know, I think one of the key things we tried to hire for at Taco Bell was courage and not necessarily someone who followed the rules or because, you know, if you're going to be rebellious, you're probably not the greatest rule follower that was ever put on the planet, me included. But you had to have the courage. And the, and the reason you have courage is if you create a culture in which it's okay to be courageous. And if you fail, you don't get dinged, right? As much as I admired Chick-fil-A from its customer experience, I never tried to emulate it because every brand has to essentially deliver its own customer experience consistent with its own brand. I think one of the things we tried to do at Taco Bell was to say to our customers, we are a more inclusive brand. We don't judge you. We're open Sundays. You know, we, we weren't out there saying it exactly like that, but we were trying to make it clear that we were a much more inclusive, irreverent, and courageous brand. A Chick-fil-A person probably wouldn't be successful at, at Taco Bell, and a Taco Bell person probably wouldn't be successful at Chick-fil-A. And I used to joke, you know, I, I said to someone, I probably wouldn't have been very as successful at McDonald's if I, you know, as I was at Yum working on KFC and Taco Bell and, and Pizza Hut. So I think you've you just got to find like, what is your home? What's the place where you can be your true self? I absolutely love that. I know you've won awards for diversity and inclusion and that you've made tremendous advances in that. Can you talk a little bit about some of the programs that you implemented? You know, it's funny, I guess it's like, go back to school. My line was, when I was at school, the girls were always much smarter than the boys. So why are the boys running the businesses and the girls not? It's that simple, right? And so I always felt that part of creating this culture was creating a culture where your gender didn't matter, the color of your skin didn't matter, your religion didn't matter and all that sort of stuff. And what was interesting was one of the other interesting things in business is you've got to really be focused, which is sometimes easy and sometimes hard. So I really chose to focus on gender, equity and inclusiveness, right? And to some people, it was like, well, why aren't you focusing on people of color and underrepresented minorities? And, and my answer was, the more I spread my focus, the less impact I'm going to have. So in my mind, it's better to say, I'm going to work on gender diversity and inclusiveness to start with. And then when I believe we've got that to the right place, then I'll go and work on, you know, the same for underrepresented minorities, people of color and all this sort of stuff. I think a lot of people are trying to do gender diversity, underrepresented minority diversity, people of color diversity, religious diversity, you know, sexuality diversity. And I think what happens is, you make progress, but you don't make enough progress that it makes an impact. And I was like, no, no, we're, we're going to dramatically make an impact on gender diversity and inclusiveness, right? So that was my focus. And we made huge progress. I think, I think like the number of women in senior management or was like when I started, when, I think in 2014, it was like 28%. When I retired, it was 48%. So we made massive progress. When I was running Taco Bell at the time, before I ran Young, we had the most diverse most gender diverse executive team and we were delivering the most successful results. And I used to say to people, is this coincidence or is this, I'm like, no, it's not a coincidence. It really started with my back in school days when, you know, the girls were smarter than the boys. And I used to think, well, if the girls are smarter than the boys and we want smart people, why the hell are boys running all these companies, right? And then I think also having a daughter, I mean, I have a son and a daughter, but I think having a daughter and wanting to make sure that as she, she chose to go into business, but, you know, making sure that I would want to lead 
so that, you know, my daughter had every fair opportunity. And there was a great, so David Novak, who I succeeded running Yum, he used to have a great quote. He used to say, but I want my 16-year-old daughter working for this leader. And if the answer was no, <laughs> it sort of stuck with me. David used it and I, I sort of, I would always think, you know, would I want my 16-year-old daughter working for this person? If the answer was yes, that was great. If the answer was no, then they, they shouldn't be a part of the corporation, right? I think we made massive progress. We did things like we took maternity leave from like six weeks to 18 weeks, partner leave from zero to seven. I gave everyone four weeks vacation because in the old days it was like, you get two weeks and then you get three weeks. And I'm like, this is crazy stuff, right? So, and I think a lot of those things had an impact. And what was really exciting was a lot of women who had not had that opportunity, they'd had their children earlier. They would come up to me and they would go, I didn't have this opportunity but I'm glad that today's mums have that opportunity. I thought that was really powerful in that they weren't like upset that they didn't get this chance 20 years ago. They were just really proud to work for an organisation that was sort of leading in this area of saying, you know, we have to help people who become, and it's not just birth mothers, I mean like adopted parents and, and a whole bunch of things like gay couples. We, we didn't distinguish between whether it was an adopted baby or your own baby or a surrogate baby or when you have a lot of women who come up to you and they go, look, I didn't get this chance, but I'm glad others have had the chance and I'm glad that this company is doing it. That's the sort of stuff that, that really makes you feel good and, and really reinforces that you think you're doing the right thing. Because to be honest, no one cares how much money you make. I mean, I know the street cares, but I, I used to get up every year and give a presentation and I'd say, hands up if you can tell me how much money, how much profit we made last year. And no one could tell me the number. And so I'm a huge believer in your legacy is never about how much money you made. It's about either what you do for people, how you change their lives, or how you create a culture in which they can be their true selves. That, that's really the sign of, I think, great leadership. Have you seen people come out of their shell and be their true selves? Have you witnessed some of that? Yeah, I, I really have. Like, you know, I've had people who work for other corporations and they will join Taco Bell or KFC or Yum and they hear the culture, you know, they've heard the, the culture's rumours, but they're not really sure it's true. And so I've definitely seen people who have come up to me and said, look, at my previous place, I really couldn't be myself and now I here, am here and I am flourishing and I'm loving it. And, and I would also do things thing you don't appreciate when you get into leadership is everybody watches everything you say and do. I mean, you don't think about it that much. I mean, but a good example is I have one of my very good friends was getting married to her partner. So two lesbians were getting married. My wife, Carolyn said to Melissa, oh, you know, who's, who's performing the marriage, the wedding ceremony. And she said, yeah, we haven't really found anybody. And she jokingly said, you should go and ask Greg. I'm sure he would love to do it for you. And so I got ordained online and was the marriage celebrant for, you know, two ladies at, who worked at Yum. The primary reason I did it was because I knew both of them and I admired them and I've, I've known them for a long time. I think they're just special women. But I'm not going to deny that in the back of my mind, I realized that as the CEO of a $40 billion company, performing the marriage ceremony for two women would make a statement. I didn't do it for that reason, but I'm not going to say I wasn't naive enough not to realize that it would make a statement because I can talk about gender diversity. I can talk about LGBTQ and I can say that, but if I talk the talk and then I walk the talk, then people really believe it versus just, oh yeah, he just, you know, tells a good story. I even said, you know, someone at my retirement party was like, one of the, what's the top, one of the top 10 things. I think everyone wanted to say, well, when we launched the Doritos Locos Taco, and I said, being the marriage celebrant for Melissa and Stacey was in my top 10. 
I don't think there's too many CEOs that got ordained and married a lesbian couple who worked for the company. That is rebellious. That is amazing. I mean, to me, it was just, it was me being myself, being me being my true self. It made a statement, a profound statement. And I think it's attracted a lot of people of the LGBTQ community who probably believe now more than ever that this is a place where I can be my true self. Did you receive uh, any heat? No, I, I mean, it was funny because I was like, oh my God, in Louisville, I'm sorry, I know you're from Louisville, but I was like, boy, am I going to like get run out of town? And there are other places I probably would have chosen, which I would have thought had less issues. But no, I, I didn't. In fact, I was, I mean, I'm, I'm sure there were some people who didn't like it, but the only people that reached out to me were people who were supportive. I absolutely love that. And I have not been in too many corporate cultures like that. <laughs> As I said, everyone owns the culture, not just the leader. Because it's not my culture or David Novak's culture. It's our culture. But there was an interesting question. I, saw, I read something earlier, which I thought was a great quote, which was often people, when they're looking at new hire, so going back to the new hire discussion, the question is, you know, will they fit in? And the better question is, will they make us better? And I think we have to move from will they fit in to will they make us better? Because I think will they fit in is going to not evolve the culture. Whereas if you ask the question, will they make us better culturally, then I think that's a much better question to ask. It's not my question, but I'm, I, I love it and I'm, I'm going to use it, you know, going forward because often you often say to people, well, I wonder whether, you know, Billy or Mary will fit in. And the better question is, will Billy and Mary make us better? That is a great question. And in your time as an executive, did you ever see other executives that were afraid to hire people who were better than them or that would make things better and that were doing yeah, a posturing yeah, yeah. game? You see enough of it. Invariably, I've decided those people are very, invariably get caught out, right? As I went through my career and through different, you know, everyone knows who the suck-ups are. I would have people say to me, oh, you know, Freddie or Mary, they're a suck-up and they just got promoted. I'm like, yeah, but karma has a way of catching up, right? It, it, it will catch you. You know, I think one of the biggest challenges for people is to be vulnerable. And I think the more vulnerable you are, the more courageous you can be. I'm going to now get into trouble by saying culturally, Americans are terrible at being vulnerable. I find there are other cultures that are much better at, you know, sharing their weaknesses and their, it's so funny, like I'm like the world's worst speller. I really am the world's worst speller to which my friends the other day, my wife was watching, you know, the spelling bee, you know, the spelling bee thing on ESPN and everyone in my family was joking. Well, there's something Greg would never have been invited to participate in. Right. So, which is true. And so I would get up through the years and I would say, look, I really, I'm, I'm terrible at spelling. I'm not very good at written grammar. I'm, not a, not a process person. And the HR people would come running, oh, you can't say that, you can't say that, you can't say that. And I'm like, well, yes, I can, because it's true. If you're open with what you're not good at, you will hire people and surround yourself with people who have got the skills. I didn't need a spelling expert. A good example in business is I appreciate process. I'm not good at process, right? It's no good if I have all these ideas. If I surround myself with other idea people, and no one can execute it. But if I pretended I was good at process, that would be a mistake. And I remember when I lived in Orange County, you know, you'd follow the cars and every kid's, every car had my kids and national honor student. I'm like, well, where are all the dumb kids in Orange County? Because they can't all be smart, right? I mean, it's just, there is a bell curve and they can't all be this smart, right? So it always used to make me laugh because I actually think IQ is one of the least important things to be successful in business. I have this saying, which is smart heart and courage. And smart is IQ. It doesn't matter how much you read or study, you can't really improve your IQ all that much. So whatever you were born with is sort of what you've got. Yet, if you think about it, parents are absorbed by A's, A pluses, A minus, B's, grade point averages. 
I actually think it's a characteristic that least will define business success or leadership success. There's emotional intelligence, but it's not taught in schools. So there's smart, IQ and EQ. There's heart. Do you have a genuine heart for people, which they know is real? And then do you have a heart for the business you're in? Like, do you really enjoy whatever you're doing? And then the last one is this courage. And there's a lot of people that are smart and a lot of people who have a huge heart. There's not as many people that are courageous because they're worried that oh, if I do the wrong thing, I'm going to lose my job. And, and the other thing about courage is you can't be courageous in the absence of fear. Fear has to be present in order for you to be courageous. So I've always said to someone, if you knew what the outcome was, you weren't really courageous because there was no risk. The best leaders in my mind are a combination of smart heart and courage. They're the characteristics of leadership. And unfortunately, the only one we do in school is the one that's least important, IQ. When you described your Santa Ana location about kind of the vibe and all of your surroundings and where you set up in California, that wasn't necessarily like, how did you pick that place? Well, the office is always in Orange County because Glenn Bell, who actually started Taco Bell, lived in Orange County and had his first restaurant in Downey, California. In hindsight, it was a really good place to be because it's a a real sort of foodie place. I mean, it's a place where people, there's great restaurants and people will experiment. And you've also got a lot of what I would call, you know, Mexican infusion somewhere back between 2001 and 2005. And we put guacamole in a burrito for the first time. And there were people in the Midwest and the East going, what's this green shit in my burrito? And we're like, it's guacamole. What's guacamole? And now, of course, salsa outsells ketchup and all these sort of things. Mm -hmm. So it was a really great place. And I also think, you know, with the California vibe and the sort of relaxed California style, and it's probably more liberal, it was probably a good place for a rebellious brand to be based. There's not a lot of part of the world where you're going to have a group of co-workers who all go out and surf in the morning before they come to work, right? So there was just this relaxed, and I think when you're more relaxed, you think better and you make better decisions. That was why I put everyone in jeans, right? KFC belongs in Louisville, right? I mean, I don't think KFC would be successful if you moved it out to Irvine and Taco Bell wouldn't be successful if you moved it to Louisville. I think part of its success is just the cultural context in which these brands exist. I think it's really important. I'm going to give you a couple of examples. I'm going to demonstrate to you. I think every decision we make is an unconscious emotional decision. I'm going to try and prove it to you. You ready? Okay. What is the functional role of a watch? Why do we wear it? Tell the time. How much do you think it costs to buy a watch that pretty accurately, fairly accurately tells the time? 10 bucks. 10 bucks, right. So why would you spend thousands of thousands of dollars on a watch? It's not to tell the time. It's to make a statement about who you are. So here's the next question. What's the functional role of a car? To drive. To drive, to get you from A to B, right? So if you drive a Kia and a Rolls Royce for one hour at 60 miles an hour, how far do both of those cars functionally go? 60 miles. So question, why would you buy a Rolls Royce when a Kia? Well, the answer is not because it's not about just getting you there. It's about your status, your success, all, all of these sort of things. So here's my favorite one. Do you know what, what is the functional role of your hair? Why do we have hair on our head? Well, you have, I don't have much anymore, but do you know why? To keep your head warm? Yes, exactly. To keep your head warm. So when I'm giving a presentation, I jokingly say to the audience, so guys, how much does it cost for a haircut? And the answer is, oh, we'll make it up $20, right? And so I say to every all the women in the audience, put your hand in the air and you can put your hand down if you spent less than $20 on your last haircut because your hair is just to keep your head warm. That's all, that's all it's there for, right? Well, the answer is that's not what your hair is for. It's all about how I feel and, and my positiveness. And, and so a lot of marketers market to the functionality. The car goes from A to B, the watch tells the time. and you know, But that's not why we make any decision. 
We don't make decisions for those practical functional reasons. We make them because usually it either demonstrates our success or it makes us feel good. I'm, and I'm not belittling the fact that it's you should want to feel good or you want to demonstrate your success. I'm not belittling it. I'm just saying that's just how we're wired. Can you tell the story too about how you ran out of chicken in England? That's an embarrassing one, but yes. So we were moving the sort of distribution system from company A to company B. I won't even mention who the companies were. And everything obviously is automated and it's all technology. You know, these days it's all technology driven and, you, you know, and the restaurants place orders and the orders get through the distribution system, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, we sort of pretty much changed overnight. And when we changed overnight, the system crashed. And so we couldn't get an order from the restaurant to the distribution center and then we couldn't get the chicken from the distribution center back to the restaurant so it's not very good when you're a restaurant a chicken company chicken restaurant company you have no chicken the lady there was a, the chief marketing officer for KFC at the time Meg Farron was the one and she came up with this idea of you've probably seen the ad where we said FCK sorry we've run out of chicken right now Everybody knew exactly what FCK meant, as we did when we wrote it or when Meg created it. I think it was another great example of just having courage, right? There's not many people. Most people would do the, well, we're really terribly sorry and we take full responsibility and we've been bad boys and girls and we promise not to do it again. Whereas I think it takes real courage to go FCK. <laughs> we, we stuffed up. You know, there were some moral judgments placed around that, right? So I'll be honest, in the UK, it played pretty well because they're pretty crazy and it would have played well in Australia. But I'll be honest, there were people in Louisville in, at head office who did not like, did not agree with the decision that we should run it. And I was like, no, 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 this is, this is us being courageous because now, you know, someone asked me, would we have run it in the US? That's an interesting question. Now, here's what is even more interesting. So Randall Stevenson, who at the time was the CEO of AT&T who I know Randall because everyone's in Dallas. I was talking to Randall and he said, I took your ad, FCK ad, to my executive team meeting and I asked them, would we have the courage to run something like this if we had a similar issue? And they all said, no, they wouldn't. So he said, I compliment you guys for having both the culture and the courage in order to run it. So I think it goes back to the importance of culture and then the fact that, you know, as a leader, you're not going to get everyone to agree with you. You have to do what you believe is right. You can't make decisions on what is everyone going to think. That's the trouble with politicians, right? Politicians make decisions. You can just see it. It's not what they truly believe. It's just what they think people want. And my point of view is that's not leadership. Leadership is ultimately doing what you think is right. And then, it, by the way, if it proves out to be wrong, there, will be, there could be consequences and you have to accept it. Okay. So speaking of consequences, you also yeah. have had to deal with lawsuits. And yes. I like how you guys handled that one too. So can you tell yeah, that story? So, so we woke up one day and we were being sued for not having enough beef in our meat, which was completely bogus. And it was funny enough that, of course, a law firm in Atlanta had found a plaintiff in California, what a surprise, to sue us, right? We knew we were right, as in there was obviously, you know, we're not going to call it ground, you know, it's not beef if it's not beef, we're not stupid, right? But what a lot of people, again, would have done was like, oh, we're really, you know, oh, you know, here's this. So we came out and we said, I think the headline was, thank you for suing us. Here are the facts. I listed in the thing that we weren't ever going to pay one penny. Because often what happens is you get sued for 45 million. This is how the game's played, right? So you get sued for 45 million. You don't obviously like the publicity. Some people believe it. So what you do is you settle for like 2 million or 4 million. I'm just making this up, right? And I was like, we are not paying one penny. About three months later, they withdrew the lawsuit because it was not ever going to get to court. And the headline for that was, would it kill you to say you're sorry? 
which again, I don't think any company has ever run. You normally, if you, if you get a lawsuit withdrawn, you normally just shut up, say nothing and keep quiet. But the funniest thing we did was we found out that the plaintiff's attorneys, we found out where they played golf in Birmingham, Alabama. And so what I did is I bought up every billboard on every route to the golf club where it said, would it kill you to say you're sorry? Because I knew that these guys would go to golf and all their mates would give them shit for basically not winning the lawsuit. And so that to me was, that was the best payback ever was, and I don't, I never met these people. I don't know if it had an impact, but I got to believe they copped a lot of ribbing from their friends because you could not get to this golf club without driving past one of our posters and said, would it kill you to say you're sorry? We never had another frivolous lawsuit. And so I think sometimes taking a stand and being courageous versus just, oh, I just want this to go away. I just want this off the front page, which is what you get a lot of advice that you get. So I think in both cases, we handled it really well. And I think it was a great example of our culture and a great example of us being courageous. Did you ever call your dad for like business advice or? I was with Unilever for 17 years. A couple of times in that 17 years, I got job offers to go somewhere else. I called him for advice, not so much for him to tell me what to do, but advice for him to ask me how I was thinking it through, right? Yeah, I mean, it, it wasn't like I would phone him up and say, hey, should I do a knitting book? It was more, but it was around things like, hey, I've been offered this job. It's an amazing job. And he would, he was kept, also kept things very simple. He had a great saying, which was, you know, if worrying fixes things, we should all worry, but only action fixes things. So I've always grown up with this, you know, it's no good worrying about anything because it doesn't fix it. You've got to actually act. And so I think I've been driven to act, sometimes impulsively. Sometimes people will say, and maybe you could just think a little bit before you act. What I refuse to do is to be caught up in this, I'm just going to worry about stuff. Every minute you spend worrying is a minute less you spend solving. So those sort of things did definitely stuck with me and still stick with me today, right? He worked at Nestle and I was at Unilever, you know, and when people would connect the last name, so when people go, oh, you're Greg Creed, you're Albert Creed's son, they always said, what a great man. I always knew my dad was incredibly well respected in the business community. That was something to be proud of, right? And my best dad story is, let's be honest, in the 60s, if you misbehave, you got a smack on the bottom. That's what happened. Right? Now, today you'd be thrown in jail and probably locked up for 10 years. But anyway, except my dad never hit me. My dad's punishment was, you will not play sport this weekend. And by the way, you will not tell him you're sick. You will turn up, stand on the sideline, and when they ask why you're not playing, you will say, because I misbehave, this is my punishment. His belief was, well, if I give you a smack on the bottom, first of all, I'm not going to hurt you. So that lasts about one minute and doesn't really give you much to think about, except, oh, ouch, that hurt for a minute. His point was, if you didn't play sport that weekend, you had the whole week to think about it. And you had to explain to your team members that you had let them down because you had misbehaved. Once he'd made up his mind, this is the other great thing, which I learned. I didn't enjoy it at the time was he never changed his mind. So if I had misbehaved and it didn't matter how important the game was this Saturday, I never played. If it was the grand final, I would not have played. Now, luckily, I never, never misbehaved close to the grand final. Are you softer with your kids? Yeah, much softer. <laughs> Neither my wife or I have ever seen their kids, but I am the softy of the two of us. So if they really, really want some, they're obviously all grown up. They're in their mid-30s now. But growing up, if mum said no, they would come to dad to try and get a yes. Yeah, I was definitely, definitely the softy of the two of them, of my wife and I. I think it's very true. The decisions you make and the friends you choose to keep sort of define who you are. I definitely agree with that. And I want to know, were there any menu choices that you wish you could put back on the menu? Well, it's funny because when I left and they took off the Mexican pizza, I had so many friends complain to me. 
why is the Mexican pizza taken off? And I'm like, hey, I don't work there anymore. And um, I'm not on the board anymore. So once you've moved on, you can't be the person who goes back and personally says, well, why did you do that? Because that's, your, that's not your time. I think everyone has their time. It's sort of like I retired at the end of 2019. I came off the board in May of 2020, which was the annual shareholder meeting. And it's not that I don't have a lot of shares in Yum and it's not that I don't love the company, but my, that was my time and my time is now over. And it's not my job to tell people what I think they should or shouldn't do, right? So I really keep all those opinions to myself. But it's so funny. I've had so many people were like, why they take off the potatoes? And why can I not get my Mexican pizza? I'm like, well, if you don't like it, phone them up. I mean, I'm not the guy to, to talk to. So my Who's wife, the guy to talk to? Uh, well, yeah, Mark King, who now runs it. But my wife always used to joke that whatever she liked, I took off the menu. We once had a shredded spicy chicken, which she really loved. And it wasn't selling particularly well. So we deleted it. And she came home one day. She's like, I couldn't get a spicy chicken. And I said, oh, yeah, I forgot to tell you. <laughs> we deleted it, right? I don't drink coffee, but, you know, I used to drink a lot of soft drink, right? Pepsi had a diet Pepsi with lime. I love lime. I just love lime. Right? And it was the same thing. So I, I went to the supermarket one time and I was like, oh, there's no diet Pepsi with lime. They must just be out. And, you know, two weeks later, there's no diet. So I, we serve Pepsi. So I know everyone at Pepsi, right? So I phoned up my, the guy I knew the best at Pepsi. I said, hey, there's no more Diet Pepsi with Lime. And he goes, oh, yeah, yeah, we knew you. We knew this phone call would happen because we deleted it because you're probably the only person in America buying it, right? I jokingly said, well, that's, you know, I said, hey, I'm, I'm the CEO of Taco Bell and, you know, I should be able to get my Diet Pepsi with Lime. So this, this is actually a, a true and funny story. About a week later, my wife phones me at work and she goes, there's a Pepsi truck. You know those big blue trucks? that is in our gated community. So I don't even know how it got through the gate. They dropped off a pallet of Diet Pepsi and a lime tree. No. Yes. I was like, now that's ballsy. That is is ballsy. And then they dropped off this huge lime tree with limes on it. And we're like, the message was, make your own Diet Pepsi with lime, which I thought was so funny. Just so funny, right? So yeah, even as the CEO, you don't always get to keep the products that you like or that you sell. So anyway, yeah, I play a lot of golf and one of the places we live, there was, it was around a lot of homes, right? And so someone bought me a dozen golf balls and put the McDonald's logo on because they said, you don't want to be hitting Taco Bell golf balls into people's backyard. You want to be hitting McDonald's and then people won't think it's you. So I had a dozen McDonald's golf balls, which I sort of splattered all around people's homes and everyone was like, yeah, better than leaving Taco Bell golf balls for people to think you're the bad Taco Bell guy because everyone knew me as the Taco Bell guy, right? So the funniest thing was I was washing the car one day. All the kids in the neighborhood sort of knew I would. So these kids were like, do you own Taco Bell? And I was like, no, if I owned Taco Bell, I wouldn't be living here washing my own car. I'd be, you know, living in a really palace with other people washing my car. And for Halloween, everybody wanted a $5 Taco Bell gift card. Because they knew I ran Taco Bell. So no one, the kids were like, oh, yeah, Mr. Cree, we don't really want any uh, candy. You got a $5 gift card. So I would have to bring home, buy like 100 of these bloody $5 gift cards to give all the little munchkins that would come around for uh, Halloween. That was always fun too. That could add up quick. Do you have a chihuahua? I know you have a dog. Yeah, no, she's a long-haired miniature dachshund. No, no chihuahuas. Though it was funny. This is the one thing, because I'm a terrible speller, when I was moving from K, I was, I was a CMO for KFC in Australia, coming to be the CMO for Taco Bell in the US. And I learned how to spell Chihuahua because I thought some smart ass journalist is going to ask me, can I spell Chihuahua? And because I'm the world's worst speller, I learned C-H-I-H-U-A-H-U-A. I still remember how to spell Chihuahua. I could not spell that word unless I had, you know, remembered it. But I, I thought some reporter is going to ask me a smart ass question like, can I spell Chihuahua? No one ever asked me the question, but I did learn how to spell it. So 
I don't know how to spell it. I would have to definitely um, I know. It's, look it's, at it's, it one more time. Okay, one final question. Hard tacos yeah. or soft tacos? Soft tacos. I know it's funny. The rest of the world eats soft tacos. Like, so when we launched Taco Bell in Australia, we sold a lot more soft tacos than hard tacos. It's really a US thing. It's quite, I mean, obviously in the US we sell, I think they sell two and a half or three billion hard shell tacos in the US, but outside of the US it's soft shell. So I'm a soft shell guy. Did we tell you the time Gray Davis was running against Arnold Schwarzenegger and we said we'd call the election based on the difference in sales between the soft and hard shell? Oh, this is hilarious. So we, so we ran a campaign and we said, we're going to measure the increase in soft shell sales and hard. So soft shell was Gray Davis and hard shell was Arnie. And we said, we're going to call the election on the basis of the sales increase. It couldn't be the absolute sales because we obviously sold more hard shell. So the morning of the election, we called that Arnie Schwarzenegger was going to win the election. Now, we didn't realize that broke all of the voting rules and laws that you can't actually call an election before on the day of the election. And so we got a bit of a slap on the wrist. I mean, everyone knew we didn't do it on purpose, but we called we called Arnie Schwarzenegger to win. We were actually pretty accurate at by how much he won by based on because we said to people, if you if you want to vote for Gray Davis, go and buy a soft taco. If you want to vote for Arnie, go buy a crunchy taco. And the good thing is sales went up because everybody thought this is fun. And then, yeah, we called the election. Had a big ad in the, all of the California papers saying, you know, Arnie Schwarzenegger is going to win today. And then the Electoral Commission were like, um, naughty boys, not meant to do that. Um, now, we didn't get fined or arrested or anything, but we were like, oh, yeah, we won't do that again. Sorry, didn't know the law. Oh, my God. That's so much fun. Yeah. I love that. Is there anything that you would like to ask my dad? What is the thing that he knew where you had misbehaved, but he never chastised you for it? I'm sure that he knows something you did that you think he doesn't know. So I want to know what is it that your dad knows when you misbehave one day that he never let on that he knows you did and you think you got away with it. I want to know what that thing is. Oh, I love that. That's a good one. I have not been asked that yet. (laughs) That's scary. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah because parents know stuff that they don't let exactly. on to don't they exactly my oldest found a report card where one year i got 57 for english so whenever he he got a not so volunteer he's really good at english he's like his mother but he he would always roll out the well i never got 57 for english though did i so <laughs> don't you love how they like to sock it to you oh yeah just like warm you know so to be fair i never was like the over doting honestly but the other great thing about my parents were they never like i was a good b student because i was lazy as hell right? I'm, I'm sure i could have been better but i didn't try and my parents never went to a parent teacher night because i never told them they existed and as an only child it wasn't like my brothers and sisters were bringing home notices they were just like hey you know as long as you did your best and i'd be like yeah, I did my lazy best, but, you know, I did my best. So they never got overly excited about grades. And, you know, I was always going to go to university, which I did, but they were not those parents who were like, oh, my God, you know, you've got an A minus or a B plus. Or they were like, oh, well, you're going up a grade. Yeah, oh, you're going to university. Oh, you know, you got a job. And they were never consumed by my, you know, scores at school. All right, well, listen, it was lovely to talk to you. Have a wonderful birthday week and I will send you the graphics and the audiogram and all the links. And I just love talking to you. Thank you so much. Yeah, it was fantastic. I really appreciate it. And uh, let me know what your dad says to the question. Oh yeah, you'll get that. (laughs) See you soon, keep well. Now, let's switch it over to grandpa. What did you know about me that you didn't let on to? I know that when you have confidence, 
that you have a lot of ability. You can really portray that if you can get a, a running start. The reason why your father pushes you a little bit is because I know that once you get moving, you can really start flying and really start going fast. If there's a barrier in your way, and most people, if there's a barrier in, in their way, sometimes they never reach their full potential. So I knew that you could break barriers. I just have to make sure that the path is laid free for you so that you can overcome some of the adversities that we all face. And isn't that what this CEO at Taco Bell has done, is that he knows how to do the right things. He knows how to network with people, make them comfortable, and where they can be. He calls it courage. But isn't it really where you can be bold and take your initiative and not be penalized for doing so? He changed certain ingredients because he knew it was the right thing to do. Get some of that sodium out of his product to make it healthier, especially in today's times where this has become a major health issue. And he just said, well, we're not going to advertise it. We're just going to do it and then measure the results. A lot of people have to keep questioning themselves and criticizing themselves and are afraid to make a move, whether your name is Rena or you're the CEO of a major corporation. Sometimes you just have to be bold and go for it and see what happens. When you reach for the stars, as I used to tell you, you can ascertain much higher, higher levels. But if you only look in front of your nose, that's about as far as you're going to be able to see. I really enjoyed the perspective of a lonely child. You know, sometimes being the only boy in a family, I understand what it's like to also be much closer to the, the men in my family. You really grow up a lot faster. You have more responsibilities that you're willing to take on and shoulder. And uh, that's why I said, if you have a problem, just blame Wayne. He's got big shoulders. He can take it. And it really makes you a stronger and a tougher person. So the truth of the matter is, is that a lot of times when kids are just playing, they miss out on the relationship sometimes with their elders or their parents or their grandparents. Unfortunately, I was able to have very special relationships with a lot of adults and people that were older than me where I could gain a lot of wisdom points from them that a lot of kids that are just playing don't get. It's called growing up a little fast. Sometimes it's worth it, especially if you have big goals and big ambitions to really make something out of yourself. Thanks for listening to the Better Call Daddy Show. Now you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and TuneIn. If you've enjoyed this episode of the Better Call Daddy Show, please feel free to review it at ratethispodcast.com slash bettercalldaddy. Add Better Call Daddy Podcast on IG at Rena Friedman Watts on LinkedIn.com. Hold up. 